This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. The United Nations top court has ordered Israel to prevent destruction in Gaza, yet its military is raising entire neighborhoods to the ground. Large swathes of the Strip have become uninhabitable. So what will it take for Israel to stop its war? I'm Hashem Albara, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in The Hague. Ahmed Abufoul is a legal researcher and advocacy officer at Al-Haq, an independent Palestinian human rights organization based in Ramallah. In Amsterdam, Kate McIntosh is the executive director of the University of California, Los Angeles Law Promise Institute Europe. She was involved in the development of international criminal law in its early years and contributed to defining many of its elements. Here in Doha, we have Mohammed Abu Nima, professor at the School of International Service in International Peace and Conflict Resolution at American University in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program. Ahmed, we've been over the last few days talking about the different aspects of the uh, six orders that were uh, issued by the International Court of Justice and whether Israel was in compliance with those orders. Today, we will put more emphasis on the uh, destruction of evidence. And on this, I would like to ask you a question. What kind of evidence was the court having in mind? Um, I think the court had in mind uh, all kind of uh, evidence, uh, Hashim. And allow me um, just to clarify, um, uh, in relation to our work as Al-Haq, we're the oldest human rights organization in Palestine and in the mm -hmm. region. And this is the first time in our history since our establishment in 1979 that we had to announce to the public that we're unable to cover, to cover the situation in the Gaza Strip properly. This gives you an indication of the gravity of the situation on the ground. Some of our staff had to evacuate the north, uh, lost their homes, lost their loved ones, and it's becoming extremely difficult to document what's going on uh, on the ground. Uh, if history teaches us something uh, during every genocide that happened uh, throughout history, the perpetrators of international crimes in general always try to destroy evidence that will uh, uh, condemn them in the future. Israel is also doing that. Um, uh, the very fact that Palestinian human rights organizations are unable to continue uh, doing their work on the ground is a serious uh, concern, uh, should be a serious concern to all international justice mechanisms. I think the court was absolutely right to indicate that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the uh, concern is shared not only by South Africa, but by a number of states. Uh, just before uh, starting the show, 
it was announced by South Africa that yesterday South Africa has asked the court to consider um, uh, um, as on, on an urgent basis uh, to uh, make a ruling asking Israel to comply with the um, uh, with the provisional measures uh, ruling. And the court can do that in accordance with Article 75, Paragraph 1 of the Rules of Procedure of the International Court of Justice in cases where the court ordered uh, an order of provisional measures and fears that this order is not being complied with. It can, mm -hmm. uh, as we say in Latin, proporium moto, based on its own initiative, the court can order uh, the state to comply uh, with this order. And I think we're heading towards that. Uh, mm -hmm. The concerns are being shared by South Africa and other states, and I think the court has a responsibility to make sure that Israel respects the order of the court. Kate, when you see that provisional measure by the ICJ, which says that Israel has to take all necessary measures within its capacity to pre preserve evidence, people would say, well, what is the ICJ trying to achieve here when normal people in Gaza would tell you, look, just by having a look at the relentless bombardment, the massive loss of life, shouldn't that be enough for the ICJ? Yeah, there's a certain force uh, to that, Hashem, for sure. But we should remember, first of all, that genocide is a very difficult crime to prove, and the scale of the destruction does not in itself uh, establish genocide. There's that critical element, which we've mm -hmm. all heard discussed, of the special genocidal intent. So when the court comes to, decide, to consider the full proceedings past these initial provisional measures, they will be looking to see whether that special intent is present. And that special intent can be inferred from acts, but it's a very high threshold. It actually has to be the only possible inference. So there will be a lot of other evidence that will be very relevant to that. We could think about um, internal records of government or army meetings, and we could also think about the swathe of digital evidence which is becoming more and more relevant in proceedings, whether from private uh, Facebook, social media accounts or otherwise. So there's all sorts of evidence that um, will be relevant to this request. And in establishing whether or not this is a genocide, the court will be looking beyond the physical destruction, which, as you say, is so obvious to all of us. Mohammed, activists on the ground have been documenting cases of bombardment, destruction, schools, hospitals, churches, mosques, 4,000 of history of Gaza. Couldn't this, be, couldn't this be a case to be prosecuted, albeit at an individual base by the ICC, for example, in the near future? Um, uh, thank you. I'm, uh, I think in, uh, absolutely the, the, the scale of destruction, as you mentioned, whether it is mosques, hospitals, the school, uh, UNRWA relief agencies, and, and the entire uh, infrastructure, there is no agency or uh, organizations on the ground that has not been affected. And I think the scale of destruction, as mentioned by Kate and also by Ahmed before, uh, is def definitely um, uh, uh, provide enough evidence and enough um, things on the ground to be a base for uh, uh, for cases, uh, genocide, definitely ethnic cleansing. And we see that. We see that not only uh, uh, prior to the uh, ruling of 26th of January, but but also after. The, the numbers after are also staggering. You have about uh, 2,000 Palestinians killed since then, uh, and you have also uh, 3,000 injured as well. These are, these are the minimal number that were referred. Uh, another statistic, 
case, we have it uh, is regarding the houses that were demolished and de destroyed, over 44 squares of houses, uh, which is, you know, um, amount to hundreds of houses have been uh, deliberately demolished and destroyed and bombed uh, since 20, since 26. But add to this the issue of starvation, the issue of water, clean water, and something that not many people talking about it, which is the pumping of water, uh, uh, seawater in the in the tunnels that Israel been doing for for the past few months that have a major effect on the livelihood and also mm -hmm. the capacity to inhabit Gaza uh, uh, afterwards. So, uh, you know, it's it's really mind-boggling when people talk about you know more evidence of intentionality. But I guess, as Kate said, the threshold is very high, and I think there have been enough reason for that at, at this point. Uh, Ahmed, we do understand this is an extremely delicate case, and this explains why the, the court has been trying to do its best to navigate through the, the entire procedure and look for the most practical measures to be implemented. But the measures, when you look at them and when you read them in detail, do they really make any sort of sense for the people of Gaza who have to walk daily through the areas that now lie in ruin and whose basic instinct is just to survive for another extra day? Um, you know, the, the way the uh, provisional measures are um, uh, drafted and, and decided is not necessarily that it, do it doesn't live up to, uh, to the gravity of the situation, in my view. I think there have been um, serious indigenous uh, attempts by certain states to downplay the effect of these provisional measures. So we had the representative of the U.S. at the Security Council saying, let's uh, talk about what the, or the court did not order, ceasefire. And this is uh, quite a shameful and disingenuous attempt because the court in such situations does not order a ceasefire. Um, uh, the similar situation to that is that of uh, Myanmar, where the court did not order cessation of hostilities, but it, it orders immediately uh, uh, stopping the genocidal act. So if you look at the provision measures, if Israel wants to implement them, they effectively mean a ceasefire. Now, I totally understand that it's hard to uh, sell that to people on the ground. I'm originally from Gaza. I lived through and survived three of those uh, military aggressions on the Gaza Strip, and I know how people uh, feel. But it's important to clarify for the public that the fact that the provisional measures did not order cessation of hostilities, it, does, it, it doesn't mean that they were not uh, good enough. I think, effectively, this uh, means cessation of hostilities. My only reservation on the provisional measures, um, mm -hmm. I think, would be uh, twofold. One, uh, the um, uh, uh, giving Israel a whole month to comply with the order, I think uh, it was a long period considering the serious risk of genocide that we're facing. And the fact that the court did not uh, uh, order Israel to allow fact-finding uh, missions. In previous cases, the court has relied on the reports of fact-finding missions mm. and commission of inquiries to establish genocide. So the big question for the court is, if the court saw a plausible cause for genocide, why it gave a whole month for Israel to comply, and why it didn't order Israel to allow fact-finding missions to access to the territory? And the big question now, the most important question now, is um, uh, with uh, South Africa's referred to the court that Israel is not complying, mm -hmm. and the court need to intervene, what will the court do? The court has the authority to uh, um, step in in such situations because Israel is ignoring its provision measures and making a mickery, okay. not only of the court's ruling, but of international law as a whole. Kate, if by the end of this month, so lawyers from South Africa 
go back to the ICJ and say, listen, we gave the Israelis, you gave the Israelis a month, and within that month, the relentless bombardment continued, property was destroyed, entire areas were razed, people lost their lives. This is a strong indication that uh, Israel uh, was in breach of that provisional measure. Would that resonate among the judges? Well, the question for the judges will be what to do at that point. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I personally, and I, I get the sense listening to Ahmed that he would agree, I felt that the, the court, uh, you know, retained its integrity with this ruling. I think they went about as far as they can go. I would agree with Ahmed that to order a cessation of hostilities was not, uh, you know, that would have been a stretch, really, under the Genocide Convention. They did order what they could order, which was don't commit genocide and letting humanitarian relief, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was a strong order. Um, the court itself does not have any enforcement capability, of course. It's a consensus-based mechanism, which was set up essentially after the Second World War to prevent further conflict, so that courts would um, resolve their disputes there rather than uh, going to war. So the only part, the only body of the United Nations that has authority to carry out any enforcement action is the Security Council. And of course, the Security Council is fairly unlikely to act in this matter due to the, um, the veto powers, as we know. Mohammed, you've, you've spent quite some time on the politics of reconstruction in different parts of the world. I would like to ask you a question about Gaza. Once the war is over, once this is all over, experts are saying it will take Gaza decades to rebuild. Do you think it's going to be a purely technical issue or a purely politically motivated issue, the reconstruction of Gaza? I think that's a great point, because I think it also connects to the previous point that Kate and Ahmed mentioned. You know, even if the best-case scenario were the, the court were reissued and asked for ceasefire, a cessation of hostility, after, you know, after the month is over, we have a problem in the implementation and in the execution mechanism of such orders. We basically come back to the political realm where the Security Council and the, the, the U.S. using uh, the veto in order to prevent and the implementation. And I think that is one of the core political issues that has been uh, an obstacle, an obstruction for many, uh, uh, many resolutions in the United Nations, over 70 of them that has been vetoed. So the problem is always have been political rather than legal or rather than any other, uh, any other justification. On the, the same issue on the, on the reconstruction mm -hmm. and the rebuilding of Gaza, Gaza, Gaza has been destroyed at different scales in 2014, you know, in, in four other wars in Gaza. And it's always have been the, the politics of it, the military, uh, the military control of Israel on those borders, uh, the mechanism that they put in place for implementation, and to what extent Gazan themselves and Palestinians themselves mm -hmm. have a decision uh, uh, in, in the process of rebuilding. We know from the theory and the practice the the more uh, the more the rebuilding mechanisms are imposed by the the the, the again in this case Israel or the mm -hmm. United States or other countries the less likelihood that this rebuilding will take place uh, in the benefit or for the benefit of the 
Palestinian national movement or for the people on the ground. Not only issues of accountability and corruption and others, but also, you know, we do rebuilding in order not to go back and destroy them after five or ten years. And I think that's where the problem is. You want to rebuild the mm -hmm. life and the infrastructure, but more important, you want to rebuild on the basis of a political vision, a political agreement, a political condition that will prevent a, another war in five, six years and okay. another control of Israel over the borders. Wouldn't be extremely delicate for all the parties, Ahmed, to move forward without a roadmap when it comes to the reconstruction? Because, for example, the Americans, the Israelis and the Europeans, there's a general consensus in the Western Hemisphere that Hamas should have no say in the future. And this explains why the, they say that the Palestinian Authority has to take over Gaza anytime uh, soon. Uh, how do you see reconstruction of Gaza when you don't settle who is going to take over and who should have a legitimate right over Gaza? Yeah, first of all, answering this question, allow me to, to, to say that it's only for the Palestinians themselves to decide who govern which part of the occupied Palestinian territory. It's not for the Americans, it's not for Western governments, it's only for the Palestinians through a democratic process, through elections. Notably, Israel has been preventing the Palestinians from having elections in East Jerusalem, and that's the only reason that we don't have a democratic uh, process. The big questions for Western uh, allies of Israel if they're so uh, um, supportive of democracies and want to see a democratic process, why for the past years they didn't pressure their ally in the Middle East to allow the Palestinians to have uh, elections? Uh, this, is this I, I think, need to be clarified at the outset. Uh, mm -hmm. The second thing is, you're absolutely right, um, several people are still waiting to rebuild their homes that were destroyed in 2014, for example, or even uh, back in 2012 or 2008, 2009. So this is a, one of the most important issues that need to be discussed. The Gaza that we know, the Gaza that I grew up in, no mm -hmm. longer exists. The northern of the Gaza Strip has been destroyed. I was in California last month testifying in a case against President Biden. Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin, where I testified to that effect that everything we know in Gaza has been destroyed from my kindergarten to my university. And this is also, if you allow me to touch on something uh, um, uh, Kate said, uh, of course, genocide is hard to prove. Of course, the threshold is very high. But the level of destruction that we see in Gaza, the intentional uh, attacks against hospitals, schools, these are all uh, serious uh, signs of the intention to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians, mm -hmm. to destroy them in whole or in part, because in every armed conflict, um, uh, hospitals are the main point where uh, it gives uh, the civilian population the feeling that there is safety, where they can receive medical aid and medical care. Israel has been deliberately targeting hospitals from the north to the south in a, in a clear plan to okay. push the Palestinians, to create conditions to induce them to leave uh, uh, to Sinai. And this is not new plan. Zionists have uh, often spoke about the Gaza Strip and the Gaza population as a demographic burden. Uh, Kate, never before had any war been so documented the way the war in Gaza has been documented by media and by activists on the ground to the, to the point where people now are drawing parallels between what happened in Gaza and what happened long time ago in the German city of Dresden. Now, from your own previous experiences, post-human rights field operations in Rwanda and Bosnia, 
What do you think will be the biggest challenge facing the people of Gaza once this, this is all over? Oh, my goodness. What's this going to look like once it's all over? Um, I think that Gaza is really a unique situation. I mean, every situation is unique, but uh, the situation in Yugoslavia and in Rwanda was quite different in terms of a certain clarity emerged of who was going to be in charge and uh, who would be organising the reconstruction. And then there was, of course, massive support from the international community in both of those two situations, where here we have this very fundamental political issue which is unresolved. Um, if I could go back to your earlier part about the volume of the evidence, though, mm -hmm. as well, um, seeing as we're discussing that particular order of the court, I think the volume of digital evidence is both um, a great, you know, is a blessing to investigators and prosecutors, but also, you know, a significant challenge. And this isn't the only conflict, of course, which has been faced with this. I think the most analogous situation might be Syria, where there is a huge digital archive which is being managed, at least the management is being coordinated by the independent investigative mechanism, which was set up um, for Syria um, by the United Nations. Uh, and uh, you know, they're making great steps in trying to understand how to search and to categorize mm -hmm. uh, this huge wealth of digital evidence uh, in order to identify particular individuals and particular locations. And I think just from the technical perspective, that's clearly going to be uh, very relevant to how um, judges, prosecutors, investigators are going to be able to deal with the wealth okay. of digital evidence that we're all seeing coming from Gaza. Mohammed, as you know, the politics of reconstruction is complex to the point where now the Americans behind closed doors are asking countries, wealthy countries in the GCC, for example, to step in and provide financial assistance to the reconstruction effort. Some of those countries are voicing concerns, saying we have to wait and see who takes over Gaza. To do that, you have to ask the Palestinians what, what, what's the next, what's the way forward. But before that, others are trying to bring the Hamas and the Palestinian Authority to negotiate a political settlement. All this just with the hope to move forward and restart the reconstruction. How do you see that process unfold in the near future? Is it a possible? Does it make perfect sense to the Palestinians themselves? Well, I think that's, you know, that's, like, like Ahmed said, this is the, 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 the thinking today and also based on our knowledge of post-reconstruction in a post-conflict situation, the more, the more inclusion and the more the political agreement that will be reached or the outcome of the war, the more it takes into consideration the needs and the aspiration of the people who were involved in the resistance, whether it is in Mindanao, Philippines, whether it is Sri Lanka, whether it is uh, Bosnia, uh, the, the more you do inclusive agreement and take into consideration the voices of Palestinians and even follow the, the rationale, nothing, nothing mm -hmm. about us without us, the more you can secure and prevent the next war. So it all depends on what type of uh, intention and the political willing, willingness they will have for a Palestine, genuine Palestinian state, okay. genuine authority in a place that will give the Palestinian their national liberation uh, um, aspiration. And I think that's the core issue. Even if you decide on genocide or you don't decide on genocide, at the I end of the point. day, you have 100,000 people killed and injured, and there need to be a political agreement that uh, allow uh, the Palestinian to have their self-determination and dignity. Ahmad, in less than 15 seconds, will Gaza, be, will Gaza ever be the same again? Gaza will always prevail.
Gaza will always prevail despite the oppression, despite the destruction. And the people of Gaza are teaching uh, all of us a lesson how to hold on to our humanity. And Gaza is our window to the reality of this world, that we don't live in a post-colonial world, but unfortunately we live in a neo-colonial and an imperial one. And Gaza is spearheading, uh, resisting that uh, uh, domination formula. Ladies and gentlemen, I really appreciate in your insight. Looking forward to see how this whole case at the ICJ will unfold in the near future. Kate McIntosh, Ahmed Abufoul and Mohammed Abu Nimr, thank you very much indeed. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Sarah Gill, Veronica Pedrosa, and Jima Harris. Studio sound was by Yara Atallah. The program was edited by Sarun Murali, Zaina Badr, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up in the take, a growing feud over immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border hits a fever pitch. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 